This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the James Wilson Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today we're pleased to be joined by Robert Riley. Bob is director of the Westminster Institute and the author of many books, the latest of which is America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. Bob is what you might call a Renaissance man. In his storied career, he has served in the Army as a first lieutenant, in the Reagan White House, as a diplomat in Switzerland, in the Defense Department, as an envoy abroad during Operation Iraqi Freedom, as a professor at the National Defense University, and as the director of Voice of America. He's also widely known as a classical music critic. Finally, he's a dear friend of ours at the James Wilson Institute. Joining us on the podcast as well is Hassan Ahmad, one of our interns at the James Wilson Institute. Hassan, why don't you get us started? So, Mr. Riley, uh, I found the book a pleasure to read. And uh, the first question, I think, um, just to orient all of our readers and to get the conversation started, is why is America on trial? What did she do? Who are the prosecutors, so to say? And most importantly, why do you defend her? Well, I think America has always been on trial, uh, always uh, found it necessary to explain itself uh, to the world, both to its friends and its enemies. And of course, at its inception, it lays out in the Declaration of Independence the principles upon which it is founded as well as the grievances it held against the greatest empire in the world at the time, the British Empire. Now, um, out of a respect for the opinions of mankind, the American cause is placed before the world. This is rather unusual. Why would these 13 colonies huddled on the eastern coast of the United States feel it necessary to do that? Why not just grab freedom for yourself, and leave it at that? The answer to the question is because they, they claimed that what were they, they were doing uh, was based on truths that apply to all people everywhere and at all times. Not that it was the American endeavor to export uh, the, the imposition of those truths, but to practice them in this new sovereign nation. Now, that was quite ex extraordinary. It was quite exceptional. Uh, and it was not uh, received with great joy uh, by a number of other countries that were based upon other principles, antithetical principles, principles that did not recognize the inalienable rights of human beings uh, to consent, <clears throat> excuse me, in their own government. Uh, so our ancestors had to fight for that, and they did so successfully. But over the course of the United States' existence, its principles have repeatedly been called into question, <clears throat> domestically most significantly by the Civil War over states' rights and the existence 
not only the not so much the existence of slavery as the insistence on its spread to the new territories. <clears throat> the conclusion of that civil war removed that blot from the United States uh, that was so contrary to its founding principle that all men are created equal. Albeit it took many years for black Americans to assume the exercise of those rights in a full way because of Jim Crow laws, segregation, and other matters. We know that in World War II, the principles of the United States were directly contravened by the totalitarian ideological regimes of national socialism, Nazi Germany, based upon a race theory of history that explicitly denies that all people are created equal. <clears throat> and after that, by the totalitarian Soviet Union, based upon a class system of history that also explicitly denied that all people are created equal. So <clears throat> these principles are contentious. They're being contended with today, both abroad and at home. So why a defense of the United States? Why a defense of its founding? Well, from the left, there's no surprise. Those principles have always been under attack. And of course, the radical left is Marxist. So a class theory of history would always find the principles of the United States objectionable. And so Antifa does today. Now, there are various shades on the left, but <clears throat> their colors were shown clearly in the street demonstrations and the overthrow of the statues of George Washington and uh, the defacement of Lincoln and uh, the overthrow of the Grant statue. This makes it clear what their enterprise is. Now, there is, of course, a, an attack on the American founding coming from the right, and most curiously from elements of the Christian right, some of them Catholic. And they take a little bit different thesis. <clears throat> they say that the American founding was a poison pill with a time-release formula and were its victims. Now, that poison pill is taken to be the enlightenment principles of radical individual autonomy, untethered to any principles, untethered to any standard outside the will. The will is supreme, not reason, but the will. I find that antithetical to the principles of the American founding, but these critics say, no, that's expressive of it, that the founding was fatally contaminated by these radical enlightenment principles. Uh, and it's with the uh, relative de-Christianization of the United States today uh, that these principles are manifesting themselves fully 
And of course, we find these principles expressed in various Supreme Court decisions, particularly those of uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy and more recent Supreme Court decisions that explicitly refer to the autonomy of the individual on the basis of which in Lawrence versus Texas, a constitutional right to sodomy was found. And then 10 years later in the homosexual so-called marriage decisions, uh, that right was expressed in, in a, a supposed constitutional right to homosexual so-called marriage. So it's not strange that people would begin questioning what is the origin of this? And the answer of some of these Christian uh, conservative scholars is Anthony Kennedy was right. This notion of radical autonomy is in our founding. And now we are paying the full price of that. So we need a refounding on other, on other principles. What those other principles are is never articulated by these critics. Well, I undertook this book to answer this critique and to examine on what evidence it might be based from the founding era itself. And my conclusion is that there, there really was no basis for that position, that it's insupportable. Mm-hmm. But, but the, most of the book is not simply a critique of uh, those views. And as you know, I take two individuals as representative of those views who, who articulate that view particularly well. Patrick Deneen at Notre Dame and <clears throat> Michael Hanby at the John Paul II Center, by the way, who are both excellent about almost everything. But they are wrong, I believe, about the founding. <clears throat> They're particularly good in their critique of modernity. But again, they blame the founding for it. Thank you for that wonderful answer. Um, my next question then would be, how particularly is your book responding to these critics? The main body of the book is posing a different question. It's a, Well, if they're wrong... Um, then what is the origin of the ideas that made the United States possible? So I asked the question, what made it conceivable? From where did the ideas come? And what is their lineage? Mm -hmm. To what can we trace them? And that led me on a deep exploration, first of all, into the pre-philosophic tribal mind for the purposes of of context so that we are so habituated to certain ideas. Uh, They're in our bloodstream to the extent that we can't imagine human existence without them. But the fact is, uh, they're... (laughs) They, they were all revolutionary ideas when they were first introduced. And the world had been going along for millennia without them. So we, we have to come to understand what life was like 
without the presuppositions that made the American founding possible. And that, first of all, takes me to that examination of the tribal mind, then to the contribution of the Greeks, the gift of the Greeks, as Benedict XVI calls it, which is philosophy, which for the first time that we know of, presented a view of the world and existence based upon truths that were not related to one's tribe or the gods of one's tribe, but to universal truths that once again were true everywhere and at all times, that transcended the level of opinion, that stated the truth of things can be known by their natures and their essences. Right. Uh, so this this was revolutionary. We might even say to the extent that it cost Socrates his life to say some of the things he did. I also turned to ancient Israel and its revolutionary revelation. How important is biblical monotheism then for setting the ground for the founding? I think a good case could be made that Western civilization is based upon Genesis. And there are several things in Genesis that were so contrary to the surrounding polytheistic cultures in the Middle East that it, it, it is simply, it, it, they were extraordinary at their introduction. One, of course, is that there's only one God. There are not many gods. Uh, second of all, that this God is not in this world, he's transcendent. It was a, that also is alien to polytheism. Third of all, that this God created everything uh, by his word and everything he created was good. He was not contending with evil forces that were trying to overcome his creation. There were none. There was not a, a good demiurge and an evil demiurge fighting it out, which was within the mythologies of most of the surrounding cultures. God was omnipotent, supreme, Everything he good he created was good. Uh, interestingly enough, then, when evil enters creation, and it is not through God, but through man's disordered will. In the Garden of Eden story, uh, the notion of fallen nature, or called by some as original sin, and then later uh, the prophecies that a Messiah is coming, someone will restore uh, the original order restore the relationship with Yahweh, with this this Almighty God whom who has been offended. So the Jews begin history. History is no longer cyclical as it was for the other ancients, a never-ending repetition and circle of events happening until everything that could happen happened, and then it would begin all over again. The sense of futility, 
the sense that man was simply a plaything of the gods, that his existence was really of no uh, significance. This is changed by Genesis. And of all the things that God made that he saw was good, the best was man. Why was this? Because as Genesis informs us, he was made in the image and likeness of God. So there is a divine image stamped in man. This means, this means a great deal that man cannot be treated as something less than as possessing the image of his creator. The status of man through this revelation is incomparably enhanced. There is within this revelation a kind of optimism because in its introduction, its creation of history, we know that things at one point didn't exist, that this omnipotent God, this transcendent God created these things, that he's a provident God, that he uh, loves his people. He basically loved everything into being. And he maintains a special relationships with the Jewish people through whom he is going to work the restoration of things that were damaged through this original disobedience. Now, that the the optimism of this can be contrasted to all the surrounding cultures in which the futility of man was evident, a kind of native despair uh, to man's existence. Well, that, then, of course, we arrive at the Christian revelation, which um, in, in light of Christians amplifies uh, the Jewish revelation and extends to all mankind uh, this transcendent God. Let's say the Jews that were a tribal religion with a universal God, and Christianity is a universal religion with a universal God. Now, let me try to cross-reference this a little bit. Um, some of the pre-Socratic philosophers in ancient Greece observed in the world a rational order, mm -hmm. which through their reason they could apprehend. And they wondered, why is this so? How could it be so? And they speculated, particularly Heraclitus, maybe Anaximander, that what, what explains this, what could explain this, is that behind this world is a divine intelligence. And the order in nature is a reflection of that divine intelligence. And Heraclitus used the Greek word <clears throat> logos right. to describe it. And we know logos means word or reason in Greek. So divine reason, he speculated, was exactly the what, what was being manifested in the world in its order. Now, the Gospel of St. John begins with um, <clears throat> the, the electrifying words, which, of course, were in Greek, 
what in the beginning was the word, but the, it's in the beginning was logos, mm-hmm. and the logos was with God, and the logos was God, and all things were made through Him. So we find here in Christianity a more explicit assertion that this rational order is there because God Himself is Logos, is reason, this transcendent God is reason, who has now entered his creation in the incarnation uh, with Christ, who now um, adds some extraordinary revelations in changing the relationship of man with this transcendent God, as is repeatedly uh, asserted in the Gospels and in the revolutionary prayer, Our Father, man now has a familial relationship with God. And man's hope for his salvation is now contingent upon his individual relationship with God. It no longer is mediated through the divine or semi-divine ruler of the city or of the empire, which was the case throughout the ancient world, except in with the Israelites, everyone else, that it was the divine ruler, and one's proximity to the divine ruler was the only hope one had to having one's prayers said by him. There was no individual means by which one could uh, reach the gods of one city or empire. Now, this is overthrown by this notion that the political order is not the medium Mm -hmm. for reaching the transcendent. Of course, they had no notion of the transcendent. Now there is that man Uh, Each individual has a personal relationship with this God quite outside the political order. Mm -hmm. And that each individual is the object of infinite love. This this incarnate logos is also caritas. He's also love. He he, uh, performs a expiatory sacrifice for the salvation of all men. And the the inviolability of the individual person that we see in Genesis is further enhanced by this. If each individual is the object of God's infinite love for him, there's a certain way in which he must be treated. You you may not infringe upon this... uh, the inviolability of this person. You know, uh, Hassan and Garrett, I, I should have put this somewhere in the book, but you can see this notion, of course, is reflected in, in, in history from this point on. But here it is in 1858, expressed by Abraham Lincoln, quote, nothing stamped with the divine image and likeness was sent into the world to be trodden on and degraded and imbruted by its fellows. 
period, close quotes. Obviously, what Lincoln is calling upon there is Judeo-Christian revelation, right. which, which uniquely asserts these things. And he was uh, alluding to the blot of American slavery at the time. So anyone, I'd say all human rights organizations uh, in one way or another have their origin in these things. And even those who are not Christians or Jews are beneficiaries of this revelation. As you know, uh, Christ also made the extraordinary statement uh, that one is to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And the gospel relates that the, the crowd was astonished when he said this. Mm-hmm. As well they might be, because no one had said it before. It meant that everything isn't Caesar's. Everything is not comprehended by the political order, but something is independent of it that has its own autonomy. And those are the things of God. So those are the spiritual things. Christian revelation forever demoted the status of the political which could no longer claim to have within itself the ultimate ends of man. Mm -hmm. Those ultimate ends are outside of the political, though the political can in certain ways serve those ends and should serve those ends. Uh, and, And here we have the source of ideas that are essential to constitutional government, that is, to the limitation of government, so that it does not take upon itself a salvific role, which when it does, causes enormous damage, already referred to the ideologies of the 20th century. But the interesting thing about the American founding is that it was imbued with this view of man. So my next question, I guess, has to do with liberal foundings and revolutions. So the American founding, because America was a new nation, and the French Revolution are kind of posed as these um, kind of similar revolutions or these similar liberal movements in Europe and the New World. So how are these foundings and revolutions differentiated? In particular, what separates or differentiates the American founding from the French Revolution? Uh, America, the colonies, of course, were overwhelmingly Christian. They shared the view that man uh, was to, to an, a fallen creature to an extent, that the hope for his perfection was not through anything uh, related to a government which could bring about that perfection, but only through uh, faith in that in Christ and that perfection could only be achieved through some union with Christ who would be responsible and have the power to bring about man's ultimate perfection in his grace and love. That's, that was the standard view at the time. So no one looked to government to undertake this role, and they saw government as necessarily limited by this. And as you know, the uh, 
the documents of the founding are dated Anno Domini, or the year of our Lord, 1776 or 1787. They they see themselves as being within that history. I say this in contrast to the French Revolution, which restarted the calendar, which abolished the Christian calendar and abolished Sunday as well, because it was embarked upon a new enterprise in which man would perfect himself. Right. And uh, and through uh, his own efforts. And that if anything he was kept from perfecting himself by religion and specifically by Christianity, which was why the French Revolution required a massive de-Christianization campaign and the confiscation of churches in the exile or execution of priests and nuns by the knocking over of uh, crosses and graveyards, etc., uh, etc. Et well, you know, one only has to ask oneself, would a de-Christianization campaign have been conceivable during the American Revolution? The thought, right. it's, it's, the question answers itself. Right. And that's how different these two revolutions were because they had totally different conceptions of reality uh, and therefore had different objectives for the kinds of regimes they were founding. For the benefit of our guests who are, sorry, our listeners who, who might be um, hearing uh, some of these ideas for the first time, um, I think it might be helpful to ask just why the founding um, tends to be understood as drawing its sources from uh, classical antiquity, from uh, the Athenian democracy and ancient Rome. Um, but why is that account incomplete at best or um, misleading at worst? Well, the, the literacy of the American founders is quite extraordinary. The depth of their historical knowledge, uh, their mastery of uh, ancient languages, uh, their knowledge of philosophy was extraordinary. It, it particularly angers me when certain people today condescend to them. Would only that we had people of such learning as they were. Um, so they knew uh, history. Most of them knew Greek as well as Latin. They, they had to know Latin to get into the colonial colleges. And some of them also mastered Hebrew. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, they roamed over uh, history seeking to learn from it in the examples of the ancient republics in Greece and Rome. Uh, they read widely to to see what because they 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 wanted to not make the mistakes that had led other republics to be so short lived. And as you know from the studies of the references to their uh, um, the 
literature at the time, contemporaneous with the founders, it was imbued with a lot of classical references, a lot of references to ancient Rome and to ancient Greece. Of course, Washington being the American Cincinnatus, among others. Exactly. And his love for the play um, of the Roman, um, no, what's uh, the play he had it even performed at Valley Forge from, uh, it was um, Addison? Memory fails at the moment. But nonetheless, um, of course, the most frequent references in their literature were biblical. Mm -hmm. So they looked to ancient Israel. They looked to the covenantal relationship which the Jewish people had with Yahweh. And they thought of themselves as uh, engaged in a covenantal relationship, not at the level at which uh, the Jewish uh, covenants were with Yahweh, but something, let us say, analogous. Uh, but I, I'm sure, I don't think I'm honing in on the answer to your question. Do you want to amplify that a little bit? Um, it's, I think, I think it's, it's, it's a strong takeaway from your book that the sources of classical um, justification for the American founding um, are only as strong as how the classical sources informed some of the um, uh, medieval and then the um, early modern um, sources. I think what your book really draws out is the um, is the lineage that makes a very clear, bright line from either the Athenian democracy or um, or you know the Roman Republic incomplete. Um, the, the the learned experience of um, uh, really, you know, classic. Uh, sorry, of um, uh, medieval thinkers who are who are, who are Christian, um, sort of fill out the um, the necessary uh, elements of uh, revelation um, that informed the American experiment with a higher purpose. And so, I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to understand um, just you know how the project uh, of um, American uh, exceptional. Sorry, how the how the how the American experiment is perhaps exceptional because it was drawing upon um, these um, uh, philosophers and 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 Christian uh, thinkers and theologians um, who appeared in between um, the Roman Republic and um, uh, the colonial era. Yeah, thanks, Garrett. I I that of course takes us back to the lineage of these ideas. And Aristotle is particularly important because of the notion of natural law in the first place, that um, when th what you understand, if you understand a thing is its essence, that um, what natural law means is the principle of development in a thing which makes it what it is and what it will become if its nature is fulfilled, how it reaches its perfection. Just a tiny example. The, the acorn will turn into an oak tree. It has the, the nature of an oak tree and will become one if, if the circumstances for its development are, are favorable, that 
it has sufficient moisture, that the ground uh, around it is not too acidic, then it can reach its perfection as a fully grown oak. Mm -hmm. And we can know that. It's not something about which we have an opinion. The 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 acorn will at no point uh, develop into a gazelle, right, or an elephant, or a palm tree. It will become an oak. And through Aristotle's understanding, we would call those things that aid in its development good, good for it. And a drought would be bad for it. Mm -hmm. So what brings about the perfection of a thing is good for it, and, and what subverts that perfection is bad for it. And again, this is not a matter of opinion, because we, we know from a thing's essence what its perfection is. Now, uh, plants and animals, uh, obviously, they have no uh, free will, <clears throat> And there's no morality involved in their growth. A man, however, is the only creature who is conscious of his end, that is, of his nature, of, of his essence, of what he would be were he perfect. And those actions which can bring about his perfection, which are good, which are moral, and those actions which subvert that perfection, which are bad, which are immoral. And Aristotle lays out in the Nicomachean Ethics what morality means. And of course, morality only obtains to man uh, mm -hmm. because he's the only creature with free will. And so natural law in this respect means the moral law, which man can apprehend through his natural reason, we can know the difference between right and wrong, between what is just and what is unjust. This is an extraordinary contribution that reverberated through the centuries, had a huge impact on the Middle Ages, and particularly on Thomas Aquinas and his commentaries on Aristotle. Now, the, the Middle Ages took things that were incipient in the teachings of Christianity and in the inheritance of the natural law and came to some the development of all the constitutional principles with which we're familiar today. And curiously enough, and this was a big surprise to me as I did the work on this book. They were first articulated within the canon laws of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. How did this come to be? Well, it, it came to be through the uh, creation of ecclesiastical corporations, the first corporations to ever exist. In the history of Western civilization were ecclesiastical. And we have to say that their existence was a manifestation of, of Christ's famous saying about giving to Caesar what's his and to God what is his, that came to be known as the two swords teaching within Christianity. It was articulated as early as 
the early 6th century by the Pope Gelasius to the Roman emperor mm-hmm. saying I would no law I would no more presume to tell you what to do in the secular sphere uh, then you would presume to tell me what to do in the spiritual sphere. We both have our roles. They're complementary roles, but they're different. In other words, man is living under a dual sovereignty. The same people report to two sovereigns. One is secular, one is spiritual. Mm-hmm. Now the, 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 it's one thing to... to articulate these teachings, it's another thing to instantiate them. And that's what happened in the Middle Ages. They became institutionalized. Uh, and it, it, it happened with a fair amount of conflict because the line between these two authorities uh, isn't at all times particularly clear. Uh, but over the period of time, uh, particularly the struggle over investiture over who had the power to invest bishops, uh, the papacy finally established its authority that in this realm, it rules and the king Mm -hmm. rules in his. And in between those, there was a new freedom for man. There was uh, a growing um, space for him in which he could behave freely. And if in fact, he would go from one uh, set of institutions to another. If he was f- fearful of the civic courts, he would go to an ecclesiastical court. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting the way this developed. In any case, how were these ecclesiastical corporations to conduct their business? Uh, using uh, some Roman law, because the Code of Justinian had been rediscovered, they came up with some not relatively novel notions, uh, all of which were based upon the equality of men. That equality, of course, was comp- comprehensible through Judeo-Christian revelation. Everyone's made in the image and likeness of God. No individual is less in God's likeness and image. All have this eternal destiny and a transcendent God. So uh, this this was expressed in the principle of popular sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And also and also in your examination of the uh, uh, grounds of consent and how popular consent is tied up with popular sovereignty. Correct. Absolutely. Now, within these uh, ecclesiastical corporations and the questions as to how they were going to conduct their business, they had reference to a, a not it wasn't so much a principle as a statement in private Roman law, quote, omnis tangit ab omnibus approbari, what touches all must be approved by all. Mm-hmm. And in in Roman law, uh, that meant only uh, private parties. uh, You had trustees, let's say, of a ward or trustees of a a piece of property. The ward or property could not be uh, directed or disposed of without the agreement of all the trustees. That's that's what that principle, the quote omnes tangit principle, that's what 
Well, that's what that ruling meant. It had no civic, it had no political application. The brilliance of the medieval canonists was to turn this into a principle that ruled their ecclesiastical corporations. For instance, take the order of the Dominicans. They had a number of chapters. St. Dominic and then his successors would call a general convocation. And he would state that at these convocations, uh, what was proposed that affected all had to be agreed to by all. How, how could that happen? Well, first of all, he said each uh, chapter or priory would elect representatives and they would invest these representatives with the full power to approve or disapprove of the various things being considered by the order. They then would go to the location of the convocation and votes would take place, and to which St. Dominic said the, the, this body, this convocation, it is sovereign. And if it decides something, I myself must submit to it. Uh, be, so the requirement of consent, what touches all must be approved by all, exercised through representation and the right to vote. Now, even in church councils, this developed more explicitly into two-thirds. A two-thirds majority was required for the passage of certain resolutions to become laws for the order. But this became generally practiced in a diocese in general church councils. Now, canon lawyers w w did not work exclusively in the church. They also worked in royal courts. They also, in, so these, these principles leached into the civic and political order. And we find them expressed exactly the same way in the development of the early parliaments. Okay. They, too, use the quote, omnes tangit, uh, ab omnibus approbare. They explicitly use that principle. And as the early parliaments were most often uh, gathered because the king needed to raise taxes, this principle meant explicitly no taxation without representation. Right. <laughs> it meant it within the uh, church councils, and it meant it within the early parliaments. Now, we have to mention one other extremely important thing that was broadly acknowledged within the Middle Ages that you see in uh, the teachings of Thomas Aquinas and the other prominent thinkers. Mm-hmm. Not only do you have popular sovereignty, the requirement of consent, but you have the right to revolution. Yep. Yeah. Because of popular sovereignty, this is, this is the teaching. God does not directly, all authority comes from God. 
Everyone agreed on that. Now, does God convey his authority directly upon a ruler? Or does God convey uh, his authority through the people whose approbation is needed to establish a sovereign? And the answer unanimously was the latter. God does not directly appoint rulers. He invests sovereignty in the people who then convey that authority to a prince or to a king on the condition that the prince or ruler observes the covenant that is the condition of the people having conveyed its authority to him. Mm -hmm. Therefore, therefore, said again and again in the Middle Ages, if the king becomes a tyrant, the people have a right to revolution and to replace him. It's all there. Well, so you mentioned, um, that was a quite a wonderful explanation of the medieval roots of you know a lot of the kind of ideas that we see in the founding. Um, nonetheless, though, it seems somewhat new to look at it this way. Uh, so a person maybe casually knowledgeable on the founding would probably not relate it, uh, or their first thought wouldn't be to relate it with Aquinas or Hooker or Suarez or Bellarmine like you do in your book. Um, why not look, you know, more to the conventional sources like Locke or Cook or Blackstone um, for inspiration? Um, or like, why why do people or why ha- have um, those who discuss the uh, founding so often um, dismissed this kind of medieval um, uh, inspiration or kind of tradition leading to it? Well, that's simply because they don't follow the lineage of the ideas uh, back to their origin. Uh, where did where did Locke get his material? You know, I mean, Locke will, as you know, the person whom Locke quoted most often was Richard Hooker. And where did Richard Hooker get his ideas? Uh, Hooker's not shy about his sources in Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, we can discuss later what what's different in Locke, because Locke is not an Aristotelian, as you know. Yeah. But of the, in the American founding itself, the quote omnis tangent principle is quoted. It's, it's as you would know at the James Wilson Institute, James Wilson quotes it in his lectures on law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So he, he finds the medieval source. And also, you know that Richard Hooker is a hero to James Wilson, and, and he, he loves the thinking of Richard Hooker. And um, I think it's the, the letter from the farmer in Pennsylvania. He quotes, quote, omnes tangent. So the right, the taxation, no taxation without representation didn't come out of nowhere. It certainly didn't come. It, it wasn't Locke's idea. Mm-hmm. It's an ancient idea, and the the founding generation was was calling appealing to their ancient rights. Well, how ancient were there? I try to answer that. And also, as you know, I think this is necessary, particularly in consideration of 
those critics who say that the founding was a, an exclusively enlightenment product, and which leaves uh, the founding vulnerable to the charges from Hanby and Deneen, uh, because, well, there's a problem. They take the enlightenment as a homogeneous thing, and mm -hmm. therefore they take it at, at it, the most radical expression of the enlightenment. And that's how they uh, undermine the legitimacy of the American founding. What I try to show in my book is all these ideas predate the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And the, the Enlightenment expression of them by some of its thinkers uh, have their source in the medieval thinkers but later, uh, of course, I, the, the book asks the question, why then was there not simply a straight development of constitutionalism from the Middle Ages into the American founding? What happened? And I spent a considerable amount of time showing what broke the line of development. Mm -hmm. And what were the sources of the development of absolutism and the divine right of kings or the, the secular absolutism espoused by Thomas Hobbes in the Leviathan? What, yeah. were, the, what were the sources of, of those contentions, which obviously uh, uh, in each case denied these medieval constitutional principles. And then, of course, after, after the, 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 the claim, excuse me, to the divine right of kings did not go unanswered. Yeah. Uh, it, it, was, it was powerfully addressed by thinkers, both Catholic and Protestant, who themselves called upon the ancient principles to to rebut it? Yeah. Well, could um, we could we uh, take uh, one step back? Um, sure. Just because you touched on uh, something, I think it's very important um, in your book, and especially you know, in as a as a bridge here between kind of explaining what happened um, is the concept of voluntarism. Um, could you kind of explain just briefly, like? what you mean particularly by voluntarism, um, kind of the metaphysics of the will compared to reason, and then how that's particularly uh, embodied in Hobbes and Le uh, his, his work Leviathan. Yeah, um, thank you, Hassan. That's a key question. I should have raised this much earlier because the... Oh, that's okay. No, no, the, 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 entire, the fulcrum, the, or the, the hinge on which this book turns is the primacy of reason versus the primacy of will. Yeah. Now, the there's both a theological expression of these things as well as a political expression. Mm -hmm. Let me just, I, I quote a 20th century French thinker in a sentence which reveals a great deal, Bertrand de Juvenal, Quote, the man who finds in God before all else will and power will be disposed to the same view of human government. 
Mm. If God is pure will and power, all you have to do is demote that theology to the human level and ask how man ought to be ruled. And the same answer is through will and power. Now, how did this develop? In uh, Again, in the Middle Ages, uh, in Thomas Aquinas's theological work, he said that in God's essence, uh, I quote him here, will follows upon intellect, unquote. Will follows upon intellect. In other words, reason rules and the mm -hmm. will follows. Now, the in contradistinction to this came the claim in the late Middle Ages from uh, William of Ockham that that flips this. It's no longer reason, <laughs> excuse me, it's no longer reason that rules, but will. Will rules and reason follows. Now, that theology has, that latter theology is known formally as voluntarism, as in voluntas, will. Mm -hmm. God is pure will and power, that he is not restricted by anything except perhaps the principle of non-contradiction. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, if what William Ockham says is true, uh, we lose essences in nature. We lose natural law. Uh, Could you explain you know, that? Yes, natural law. And, and you, you, in the Declaration of Independence, you know there are four mentions of God, and the first one is of nature's God as in the laws of nature and of nature's God. And, you know, what is the relationship between the divine law and natural law? Well, the relationship is between God's reason and man's, and, and reason is manifested in his creation, most particularly in man's reason. Now, if you, if you remove the primacy of reason in God, if you remove logos, then you have this pure will and power uh, which is totally dependent on the will. And the divine intellect is only there as an ex executor to what the will decides. Reason does not uh, prescribe the exercise of the will. The will can do anything it wants. Mm -hmm. and, the and the will can change. Mm -hmm. As William of Ockham infamously said, God could... Uh, command us to hate him, and there would be no gainsaying him. In other words, nothing is uh, right or wrong in and of itself, but only as God tells you so. And God can change that at any time he so desires. So this is the this is a famous conundrum from from Plato. Mm -hmm. uh, Although, yeah. although, Bob, doesn't that seem to go contrary to the idea of God as logos? That's more of God yes, as yes, it does. A, a removed um, a deistic figure. Yeah, it, it goes well. It it's it's not really. Yeah, it it goes against the idea of God as logos. 
in a, in a major way. It doesn't mean God is not involved in creation. It makes creation uh, ever more dependent upon his will at every mm -hmm. instant because God does not allow any authority independent of his will. And in this way, yes. Occam wipes out natural law. Um, and in fact, he, he wipes out the existence of nature. And Etienne Gilson, the great French uh, philosopher of the last century, <clears throat> makes this clear. He says, quote, Occam was satisfied that no intelligibility could be found in any of God's works. How could there be order in nature when there is no nature? Unquote. Now, this capriciousness of God, you know, this is a this is a question that arises in every monotheistic religion, as it did in Islam, mm -hmm. which had a struggle um, in in the early ninth century over this theological question uh, over yeah. the primacy of will or the primacy of reason. And I, I do a brief comparison in the book about this, but <clears throat> eventually the theological school uh, supported by the caliphs, uh, one that asserted God is pure will and power, uh, which led to the extirpation of philosophy, the, the eventual extirpation of philosophy in the Sunni Muslim world. Mm -hmm. uh, philosophy is a reflection of <clears throat> natural law and of, of this divine intelligence. So the voluntarism has an enormous impact. It's very hard to think of constitutional thinking arising if you have a theological and metaphysical conception of a voluntarist God, because there's nothing upon which you can rely you cannot rationally apprehend a will, hmm. particularly if it's a will unconstrained by anything. Mm -hmm. You see? Now, yeah. what Occam thought he was doing in the late Middle Ages was restoring to God his omnipotence, which people like Aquinas had compromised <clears throat> through this pagan philosophy, by which, of course, he meant Aristotle. So uh, it's no longer reason that rules, it's will that rules. <clears throat> and unfortunately, uh, you want, okay, go, you want to go Bob, I wanted, I wanted to jump in just real quick <clears throat> and, and get your take on how you might think that this um, reliance on, on will might be playing out in our jurisprudence. Uh, you had mentioned that you know, there, there's a train of cases from Justice Kennedy, and I think you were alluding to um, the Bostock decision from Justice Gorsuch, um, allowing the primacy of, um, of will to um, uh, sort of uh, compress some of the uh, reasoned deliberation that um, we would usually take as our um, mark of uh, jurisprudence um, well articulated. Uh, bingo. That's exactly what the autonomy of the individual articulated 
by the Supreme Court means. It means the rule of will. And the Gorsuch decision and the decisions on uh, homosexual uh, so-called marriage are uh, explicitly a denial of the existence of the laws of nature and of nature's God. Those decisions are based on a denial of the existence of natural law and therefore of the primacy of will. And there are no grounds upon which to deny someone the exercise of their will. Unless, of course, it makes someone else feel uncomfortable or what, you know, whatever mm -hmm. uh, uh, criteria they come up with. Um, so it's, it's the, yeah, the private will is it's unbounded. Mm -hmm. it's, the court seems to have conceived itself as creating a safe space for the private individual to be ruled by whatever passions he wishes to dominate his life. And there's no standard by which to tell him uh, that he ought to live a certain way, because we know <clears throat> through our natural reason, the difference between right and wrong. Mm -hmm. you know, as, yeah. my old, as my old teacher, at uh, the Claremont Graduate University, Harry Jaffa used to tell us, if sodomy is not wrong, nothing is wrong. That's a very unpopular thing to say, but it's, it remains true. I think it may, you, can, you can say it about a number of things. If abortion is not wrong, if taking an innocent unborn human life is not wrong, <clears throat> then nothing is wrong. Once you remove the standard <coughs> of natural law, you're a goner. Mm -hmm. And the particularly ironic thing, Garrett, as you well know, is this court, um, in making such decisions, is denying the foundation of its own authority. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the court, it's, it seems like it seems like if the court wants to remove itself from political debates, it should not be making the kind of um, prudential or political um, guesses that are left to the actual two political branches. And it, it should leave the hard work of jurisprudence within the realm of reason deliberation for the two litigants um, involved. Uh, I guess. Well, you know, the rule of will um, is is the assumption of of a kind of absolute power, and mm. the court is exercising absolute power. And I think the case can be made that it is ruling tyrannically. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I've I've made the argument in in print that uh, the court <clears throat> is is merely a uh, an actor that's filling a vacuum that um, the uh, legislative branch has has largely um, left open because the legislative branch no longer is willing to push back on the decisions of the court. Um, you know, this well, idea of judicial supremacy is not the same as judicial review, right? Exactly. And um, <clears throat> I wrote another book, excuse me, <clears throat> On the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is, <clears throat> I wrote another book on the, uh, 
a natural law critique of the case for homosexual marriage. And I read every court decision, every federal court decision and Supreme Court decision and some state court decisions affecting this issue. And to write this book, I had to, there was a lot of depressing research. This was your book, Making Gay Okay, Bob? Yeah, how rationalizing homosexual behavior is changing everything. And the longest chapter in the book is about these court decisions. And the the most depressing thing to me was in reading these decisions to see the the uh, the the what could you call it the lack of education in the most fundamental philosophical notions in the members of the court and i thought i wish that james wilson institute had existed 50 <laughs> years ago and taken over the law schools because these poor people know nothing they would get an f in any freshman class in philosophy it is the poverty, the intellectual poverty exhibited in these decisions is, in a way, the most distressing thing about them. You mm-hmm. think of, you know, all, all the things you would have to not know in order to reach the decisions that they do. So the the the, yeah. the magnitude of the ignorance is simply shocking. So, so this this I think ties into a larger um, discourse that we thought I mean, we would probably get into at the beginning of our discussion. But, Jared, but I think. It, oh, let can me, you hear me? Yeah, just interrupt because. Oh, I sorry. Think, you know, you don't really. If will, if will is primary, you don't really need to know anything. <laughs> that's right. Mm. Ipsa Dixit. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. No, that's quite all right. That's quite all right. Um, Hassan and I were, were, were hoping we could uh, develop you know, a bit more of the uh, critique that you um, levy against um, professors Deneen and Hanby um, in the context of the critique that um, is made by our founder and director, Professor Hadley Arcus, um, against the conservative legal movement um, insofar as a, a critique that is um, made against the sort of proceduralism uh, that is that is um, instantiated in many uh, what are called conservative institutions, um, you know, an effort to preserve institutions and the processes um, by which um, they've uh, uh, you know been um, conceived, and then also how they exert their authority, um, but really not an examination of the the grounds, the principles that that we're trying to conserve here. Um, of course, at the James Wilson Institute, we're focused on the law. But um, more broadly, the indictment of uh, a conservatism that doesn't actually, A, have a coherent account of the American founding, and then B, if it even seeks to exist to preserve the American founding, or just seeks to preserve tradition writ large. I think that, uh, that you and Hadley Arcus make an invaluable contribution in your critique of what I would call conservative legal positivism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's all it seems to me to be because they don't refer to the fundamental principles that uh, law is the rule of reason. 
and it's not a just a procedure. Mm -hmm. And when there is a conflict in the law, it is reason that rules. Now, what do we mean by reason? We mean the laws of nature and of nature's God on which the country is founded. And if you don't have reference to that primary foundational source, you will get lost just the way Gorsuch got so lost. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it, it is uh, unhinged. In the book, I, I talk about uh, Occam's influence, uh, particularly as it was manifested in Martin Luther in uh, the parts of Germany that became Lutheran, that they were the grounds or the areas in which uh, legal positivism was developed. And it's hardly strange. It was a logical development that the idea of a voluntarist God would eventuate in legal positivism and that law should be seen as simply the product of the will. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't matter whether it's the will of one or the will of many. That's what law mm -hmm. becomes. Instead of the rule of reason, it's the rule of will. And unfortunately, um, the, it, both sides in the Supreme Court cases seem to be afflicted with this mistaken view. They've lost law is the rule of reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think that's 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 right. So. Um, Deneen and Hanby, um, they argue that, right, liberalism is uh, rooted in a Lockean idea uh, in, of subjective liberty. And so Deneen in his book, Wishful Thinking, um, sorry, Beyond Wishful Thinking, says uh, their liberal logic making protection of sovereign choice and individual appetite the main object of government leads with nearly inexorable certainty to an outcome such as that we now witness today. I, my question to you is, Deneen seems to have a truncated view of the founding more in line with what I think um, a, a lot of um, cr uh, uh, critics of what we would call uh, conservatism um, Inc. or conservatism writ large um, have um, uh, articulated lately, which is that um, conservatism seeks to preserve um, a uh, sort of set of proceduralist commitments um, for um, open inquiry, but that any kind of value judgment uh, on the terms of the choices that uh, either individuals or institutions make um, runs contrary um, to uh, what the American founders sought to establish. Yeah, well, as you know, the, their case, that is, Deneen and Hanby's case, is premised on a Locke being just uh, a smiley-faced version of Thomas Hobbes. <clears throat> mm -hmm. yeah. So they, they subscribe to Leo Strauss's view of an esoteric <clears throat> Locke. Of course, the founders did not read Locke in an, as an, in an esoteric way. <clears throat> Locke can be read in a variety of ways, as James Wilson himself pointed out. 
lock mm-hmm. was open to abuse. Um, but the, the, the real contention is that the lock is really Hobbes and that therefore the American founding is Hobbesian. And Deneen makes this explicit when he does a Hobbesian analysis or an analysis of the Declaration of Independence as Hobbesian. Um, excuse me. Now, to to prove this case, I think both of them would need to show that the founding contains within itself an elevation of the will presupposed to nothing but itself. Mm-hmm. Now, Deneen's statement, <clears throat> which you read, I think is is uh, is not objectionable because if you begin with the supremacy of the will um, presupposed to to nothing but itself, you you ineluctably end up uh, with the consequences that he described. And Deneen is a very good uh, critic of modernity. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. what he's describing as the nature of modernity. And <clears throat> I can see why he does it, because uh, we are developing in the United States into a Hobbesian state. Now, Deneen thinks that that's happening because of our founding principles. <clears throat> and I and you and Hadley would say it's happening against our founding principles. What first was required is a denial of the founding principles for this development to take Mm -hmm. place. Uh, And and I think that's what the struggle is over. You know, in the end of my book, I have a short epilogue trying to suggest an answer to the question, if it's not the founding's fault, whose fault is it? Mm-hmm. Right. And we hope we can get to uh, that as well, because I think I, I think it's persuasive, <laughs> your account. Yeah, but I, I just, you know, to, to cut to the chase, I'm just going to, we can, we can go into that, uh, uh, if you wish, later. But I quote uh, Barack Obama in his book, The Audacity of Hope. And here's what the president said, quote, Implicit in the Constitution's structure, in the very idea of ordered liberty, was a rejection of absolute truth. Mm -hmm. The infallibility of any idea or ideology or theology or ism and any tyrannical consistency that might lock future generations into a single unalterable course. So there you have that opinion from the president of the United States, which is in fact a denial of the founding principles. <clears throat> how, how big a denial? Well, as we know, the Declaration of Independence is based upon these transcendent and therefore immutable truths. And he's saying that they aren't. That there, there, we, there are no, our strength is that there are no immutable truths in the American founding. Just briefly, 
at the beginning of my book, I quote John Adams in his correspondent, correspondence to Jefferson late in both their lives. When he's uh, talking about the basic concepts on which independence was achieved. Adam says, quote, and what were these principles? I answered the general principles of Christianity in which all those sects were united and the general principles of English and American liberty in which all these young men united. Now I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God and that those principles of liberty are as unalterable as human nature. Mm -hmm. I could therefore say, safely say consistently with all my then and present information that I believe that they would never make discoveries in contradiction to these general principles, unquote. Now, there it is. Mm -hmm. You couldn't find uh, two statements that are more antithetical to each other than these from a founder of the, one of the most important founders of the United States and from a president of contemporary times who abjures yeah. those principles. Right. Right, so right. if we are malleable, if human nature is malleable, well, then I think the, the Hobbesian state is the appropriate means of our transformation into whatever uh, the absolute sovereign wishes to make us. And that, of course, is what's happening to us now. That's that's, you know, it's that's what's underway. In fact, it's made, I think, more clearly manifest uh, by the extreme actions uh, taken by certain governors during this coronavirus time. The sort of absolute powers they assume. Mm -hmm to tell people what to do, as in the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, the governor said, you may not uh, attend church or your synagogue. That's non-essential, but you may have an abortion. That's essential. To which I simply say, thank you, Leviathan. Mm. <laughs> so that's what's happening. I, you know, Hanby is right about what's happening. I just, he gets what the, the he gets it wrong when he says it's happening because of the founding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I I think I think we're 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 completely on board with the um, uh, critique you have of 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 Deneen and Hanby. I think it, it it may be even more interesting to just kind of ask why why we have such resonance uh, uh, right now, though? Why, why is their critique finding such resonance? I think it's finding resonance because of the morally degraded condition the country has fallen into. And religious people <clears throat> of all kinds who have maintained uh, an adherence to fundamental morality are asking, how, how, could, we, how could this be happening? How is it that the Supreme Court could be ruling in these ways? How could governors be behaving like this? Why are we told the things that we hold most dear in our lives are 
um, hate crimes or offenses to to others that we must uh, uh, reform ourselves in and therefore lose our fundamental faith. Mm -hmm. You know, how what what's going on here? And the answer they receive from many politicians and the court is that this the this is all in accordance with the principles of uh, the founding of this country. So they they begin to despair of it, and since they haven't been proffered uh, some other plausible explanation, they fall into the Deneen and Hanby explanation that the founders did it. That mm-hmm. we're the victims we're the victims of the American founding as Christianity has receded. Uh, what they initially intended is now come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Now, as 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 I try to show, there there simply there is no evidence, and they provide so little evidence. And what evidence they do provide, I examine and show that it is it's really without merit. Yeah, and, if and anything, I think. You know, just sorry, Garrett, but it's this is so so important. They're, the founders were, as you know, were absolutely unanimous that this republic would survive only so long as the American people were virtuous. Right. The success of the founding was premised on the virtue of the people. And they said repeatedly, the source of virtue in the people is primarily religion. And uh, Thomas Jefferson spoke so eloquently in his first inaugural address of, quote, the indissoluble union of virtue and happiness, unquote. So the the inalienable right to the pursuit of happiness means the pursuit of virtue, not the pursuit of some libidinous uh, behavior. And that's what they meant. They all agreed, whether it was a theist like Franklin uh, or, Mm -hmm. of course, the majority Christians, they all believed that. Right. We're we're, we're talking about an ordered liberty here, not... uh... Not not a license for licentiousness. Um, yeah. uh, I think I, I think that's right. Um, we do want to we do want to try and um, uh, culminate here um, as we as we reach um, towards uh, towards the end. And um, no better place than to look um, at your um, epilogue, which um, was initially truncated. Uh, sorry, was uh, was I think purposefully truncated because you probably could have written a whole book <laughs> just about. Um, the ideas you put down um, that uh, offer a counter narrative to the one that Deneen and, and Hanby proffer. Um, but for the benefit of our listeners, um, you trace the origins of elite hostility to the founding, uh, to the arrival of the German university model, um, continental philosophy, and then in particular, um, after World War I, uh, the rise of critical theory. Uh, what is the appeal? What is the appeal of the German? Um, uh, critical position and how did it take off and how is that a more um, coherent um, diagnosis of that which ails um, the uh, 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 the American um, uh, body politic right now? 
Well, it um, as you know, the the German standard of higher education was greatly admired here in the 19th century, and many went to German universities to receive their education. It was uh, the degree with the greatest prestige. And they came back with the teaching of German historicism, and the professors were invited over here to teach the same thing, mm -hmm. which roughly meant that truth is a product of its time. Time mm -hmm. change, truths change, this uh, inevitably devolves into moral relativism, cultural relativism, uh, etc., with all of which with which were inflicted today. And in that that German historic, that was not a, a plant native to the American colonies or the early United States, were in, which were imbued precisely, as John Adams said, in the belief that uh, in immutable truths and transcendent truths mm -hmm. are everywhere for everyone at all times. Uh, now, either that's correct, or if it's not, then you get the Hobbesian state toward, toward which we're headed. And German historicism is an assist because if you follow its train of thought uh, into the development uh, here of progressivism, that the state through uh, growing authority and control uh, will lead uh, the development of man, a mutable man to a higher state of perfection. You know, you 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 see why critics like Deneen would would say, though I'm not sure Deneen specifically said this, that the American Revolution really was the French Revolution, mm. or that the, really the French Revolution has that we've become the French Revolution. It just took longer to manifest itself here because we're we're undertaking the same project. Mm. Um. So, yeah, in a nutshell, that's okay. it. And yeah. Why, that's... why do people find people? I, I think that um, Darwinism, the impact of Darwin, there were a number of intellectual currents that sort of undermined what people thought was true or what could be known as truth. Um, whether there was truth, all of which were shaking the foundations of the United States. And, and today you would be hard-pressed to find someone to whom you could read the preamble in the Declaration of Independence and, and ask them, is, is this really true? Is this just a value you hold, or is it, is it true? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I guess um, as a kind of to wrap all of this in and like bring it bring it back, um, especially relating it to what you said uh, a few minutes ago with um, virtue being the kind of basis and the foundation for um, a well-ordered republic, um, and that being tied so strongly to religion and in this case particularly Christianity. Um, how, how how can you make this case to a non-Christian audience, like the one we see in America today? You know, we've mentioned that Christianity is somewhat 
rescinded. It's um, well, or, yeah, yeah, I dwindled. Think that that's that's. Of course, if you try to make a biblical argument today, you'll just be patted on the head and and told <laughs> go home. You know, that's you 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 practice that religion in your home or church or synagogue, but where where. You know, don't bring it to the the public square. We're not we're not Christians or Jews. Therefore, you have to employ uh, natural reason. You have to use natural law, mm-hmm. and uh, that that is the strength of our founding. And it's that's why I go uh, to such pains to show the natural law lineage of the American founding and the strength of natural law thinking in Western civilization, which it's necessary for us to recover, to recover ourselves. And I think it can be done. I think you're doing it. And uh, others have undertaken this enterprise. I've done quite a bit of radio for this book and I found one, a very prominent uh, American author and thinker who himself is a Protestant. He said, well, you, you know, you Catholics, you're strong on natural law, and that's what we need right now. <laughs> so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't make any quotations from church encyclicals, though some of them are very good. I would talk about natural law. Yeah. About what what is right and wrong by nature, and how do you mm. you know these things, and whether you have a nature, and etc. Can you have that discussion without um, the theological underpinnings? Ultimately, no. You know, you you ultimately not. But it's I don't think you have to uh, get religious about it. You can do it in terms of uh, a natural theology. Just as just as does the Declaration of Independence and its references to God as as you know nature's God as uh, divine justice I mean as um, sorry as supreme judge as creator as divine providence now <clears throat> that expression we know the God of whom they're speaking. They don't say it in in explicitly religious terms, but it's the Judeo-Christian God. Mm-hmm. And in other words, where you can be included here without being a Christian or a Jew, and you may follow other religions insofar as your religion does not exclude the self-evident principles articulated in the Declaration. If if it denies those. If your religion denies that all people are created equal, well, then no, that won't work. If you wish to come here and practice child sacrifice, no. If you want, if you want to resuscitate the Aztec religion and rip out beating human hearts to keep the sun rising the next morning, no, that's right. You know, so it, it has to be within the self-evident truths on which the country's based, which are rational, mm-hmm. and uh, within an understanding of natural theology, 
uh, that that is also rational. Okay. Now, the laws of nature and of nature's God, there's a relationship between that divine law and that natural law that must eventuate and in, in, be reflected in human law for that human law to be legitimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That human law requires some reference outside of itself for its legitimacy. If it right. has no reference outside of itself, then we have legal positivism, then we have the Hobbesian state. I think you can still talk to people like this. It's it's hard to because they've been educated beyond their intelligence. They've lost the basic concepts. They, they, they've lost the ability of critical thinking. I think it can be restored. They can still be shocked into things, you know, bring up Aztec human sacrifice, bring up, <laughs> bring up the Nazi Holocaust. There right. are things that you can get them to admit were evil. And then yeah. you, you get into some kind of moral epistemology. How do you know that? Are you, do you just feel that way? Well, the Nazis felt another way. Which feelings are, is there some other grounds on which you can, assert the goodness or badness of this? Of course there are. And yeah. it, it can happen. You can, it can, it's not impossible. It just has to be undertaken. Mm-hmm. And no one needs to say this to you because that's what you are doing in the invaluable, priceless work of the James Wilson Institute. And I, couldn't, I don't think you could have found a better founder for the name of your institute because of the strength of James Wilson's thinking in natural law. He was such a classical natural law thinker. If you could get all the federal judges and Supreme Court judges, lock them up and say, you're not leaving the building until you've read James Wilson's lectures on law, you might save the republic. Or at the very least, you'd restore the um, proper recognition for uh, how uh, James Wilson's thinking informed the founding. Uh, he, he, really, <laughs> he really was sort of the, the, the founder that all of the other founders would have um, rightly named as, as one of the you know, most significant influences. And yet you can... You can ask a school child, and uh, uh, almost certainly, almost none of them would have would name James Wilson uh, unless they'd seen the 1776 musical. But we're doing our part, <laughs> uh, and doing it very well. His, his good name and his and his influence. Well, for our for our listeners, again, the book is America on Trial: A Defense of the Founding. We are just so happy to have had um, Robert Riley uh, on with us today. Um, the book is available in uh, bookstores nationwide, um, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, or from its publisher, Ignatius. And again, uh, we, we, we can't thank, uh, thank you, Bob, enough. Um, this was a real treat. And, yeah, uh, really. I uh, highly encourage um, our listeners to uh, pick up a copy and to... Um, uh, grapple with its um, uh, just myriad, myriad um, 
pages of, uh, of ideas. It's really a tour de force and a, and a romp through uh, centuries of, uh, of thought leading to the present. So thank you again, Bob, and um, we hope we can have you on again with us sometime. Well, Garrett and Hassan, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to be with you today. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.